It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of the Ordo Templi Orientis and the rumors surrounding them, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence against animals and sexual activity. We advise caution for listeners under 13. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. Only two mountains in the world stand taller than Kanchenjunga, K2 and Everest. All three are located in adjoining mountain ranges, but unlike its sister mountains, Kanchenjunga isn't protected by surrounding peaks. It lies in the open, vulnerable to wind and avalanches. In 1905, Alistair Crowley led an expedition to its summit. By the time they had reached around 21,000 feet, a hired porter had fallen to his death after losing his footing. Crowley called his demise necessary, a sacrifice to the god of the mountain. He chose to ignore the fact that he'd refused to give the porters boots and let them go barefoot instead. The higher they got, the more animosity towards Crowley grew. He beat the Kashmiri porters. The Europeans loathed his arrogance. They'd had enough. So as Crowley set up camp on the night of September 1st, all but one abandoned him on the mountain and made their descent. Crowley warned them the risk of an avalanche was too high. They should wait. He knew what he was talking about. Three years earlier, he'd set the world record on K2 when he'd reached 22,000 feet, but none of them listened. So Alistair Crowley laid down to rest that night and heard their desperate pleas for help as the snow gave way. He ignored them. He rolled over and fell asleep. The future global head of the Ordo Templi Orientis later commented on the four men who lost their lives that night, screaming for his help. He had no sympathy whatsoever. He'd told them so. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our final episode on the Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO. The Occult Society of Magicians has divided public opinion since its founding in Germany around 1890. Nobody except members knows what really happens behind closed doors. Last week, we examined what we know of the OTO's history from its founding to today. We also tried to uncover the secrets held in their supernaturally dictated The Book of the Law. Then we explored one of their alleged initiation rituals leaked by writer Francis X. King in 1973. 
This week, we'll cover the divisive life of the OTO's most notorious figurehead, Alistair Crowley. We'll ask ourselves, what's the true nature of the OTO? Are they innovative philosophers, or do they worship Satan? Can they be both? In 1929, Alistair Crowley had been the head of the Ordo Templi Orientis for four years. Former London Times correspondent Henry Noble Hall sat in a dimly lit room with the man himself, Beast 666. Hall had heard many colorful stories about the black-eyed magician. It seemed impossible for them all to depict the same person. Crowley's accreditations included gambler, theatrical producer, poet of rare delicacy, high priest of Beelzebub, world-class mountain climber, and, of course, fraud. Because of his reputation, Hall entered Crowley's hotel room with few expectations. But he was surprised by how easily discussion flowed, the sweetness in the timbre of Crowley's low voice. It wasn't long before formalities gave way to the real reason Hall was there, to discuss a recent article written by journalist Harry Kemp for World Magazine. Apparently, Kemp had borne witness to one of Crowley's notorious rituals. Crowley had been the high priest for a black mass. He sat in a dark room filled with incense in front of a black altar, painted with a golden snake. At one point, Crowley had cut his chest with a knife before dipping a burning Eucharist into his own blood. Women in masks had chanted, There is no good. Evil is good. Blessed be the principle of evil. All hail Prince of the World, to whom even God himself has given dominion. The chorus was then followed by an orgy too graphic to describe. Or so Harry Kemp had claimed. Paul had come to find out if it was all true. With a wave of his hand, Crowley dismissed the rumors. The article was a bit of fiction. In reality, Kemp hadn't attended a black mass. He'd only imagined it. Crowley claimed he'd implanted a dream in Kemp's head, making him imagine everything. The blood, the flames, the orgy. Kemp's convictions were strong because the fantasy was his reality. But it was harmless. Crowley insisted he didn't and wouldn't practice black magic. Hall questioned further, but did Crowley believe in magic? Did he really claim to have supernatural powers like the ability to implant memories? Crowley smirked. He looked at the reporter straight in the eyes and said, there's nothing supernatural about magic, any more than there is about wireless telegraphy. Magic gets me anything I want, with the limitation, of course, that I must not use my powers to do anything that would break my oath. All magi are bound to poverty, chastity, and obedience. After that day, Hall became almost friendly with Crowley. They met on a handful of occasions. Most of them were even more peculiar than the last. Later in life, Crowley would tell Hall that in May 1910, he had called upon the Roman god of war, Mars. During the encounter, the ancient deity had predicted both World War I and World War II. Years afterward, Hall still hadn't made up his mind about the outer head of the OTO. He called him a bewildering riddle, who was also refined, courtly, and well-read. The man who practiced sex magic and yet somehow claimed to have taken a vow of chastity, who supposedly prophesied two of the deadliest wars in human history, who allegedly had limitless powers and yet did nothing to prevent either world war, 
still managed to charm his way into the heart of Henry Noble Hall. Crowley had that magnetism, that air about him. It was enough to ignore any warning signs of real danger. Occasionally, it was even enough to follow him across the world. In 1921, young lovers Cecil Maitland and Mary Butts arrived at the Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, Italy. Alistair Crowley had built the commune about a year earlier as a school of magic, a place to study and practice the law of Thelema, the message dictated in the Book of the Law. It offered its visitors the opportunity to learn the secrets of the universe by shedding all preconceived notions about what was possible and what was not. At the time the Abbey was founded, Crowley led the OTO in Great Britain. He'd already started incorporating his Thelemic teachings into their work. The magic and rituals employed at the commune are most likely the same ones Crowley used to reshape the OTO in his own image, once he was made its global head in 1925, which means no matter how much they've evolved since, the Abbey of Thelema provides the most concrete insight into what the OTO might look like today. You can think of it as a sort of trial run, and for those who studied at the Abbey, it was very much a trial by fire. Cecil Maitland and Mary Butts were both writers. They'd previously studied Crowley's teachings, but only in books, never in person. Mary was particularly interested in the occult. At the Abbey, she'd hoped to reach the fourth dimension, which meant she'd leave the confines of both time and space. According to science, the only conceivable way to achieve that would be to enter a black hole and survive. But like we've said, science often only looks outside the human consciousness for answers. Magic looks inwards, and maybe Mary was onto something. Upon arrival at the Abbey of Thelema, the two novelists wandered the grounds of the renovated farmhouse. Standing on the property facing west, they could see the city of Palermo. To the east, the Mediterranean Sea. The Abbey was surrounded by lush gardens filled with flowers, fruits, and vegetables. Rocks were painted to honor Diana, the Roman goddess of the countryside, and Jupiter, the god of the sky and thunder. Inside, the writers entered the main room. A large open space had been transformed into Crowley's temple. Someone had painted a large magic circle filled with different symbols and Thelemic deities in red on the floor. Nearby was a blue pentagram. An altar stood inside the circle. On it sat the Book of the Law, a number of magical instruments, and, most familiarly, a guest book, to keep track of the visitors coming and going. There were small stools scattered about the room for people to sit. Crowley's chair was a throne that sat behind a small metal stand, meant for burning incense. Cecil and Mary were told that this was where the rituals occurred, including any and all sacrifices. As they moved throughout the rest of the house, they noticed that the walls were similarly adorned with a variety of colorful frescoes and oil paintings. The writers could appreciate all the time, energy, and money that had gone into making the Abbey feel like a world unto itself. But the actual accommodations were rudimentary at best. There was no gas, electricity, or plumbing, and there was no form of sanitation either. Residents apparently relieved themselves however and wherever they pleased. Come high summer, 
the writers knew it would be impossible to escape the aroma of human feces. It was only June, and their nostrils were already troubled. They couldn't imagine how the children felt. At the time, Crowley had two lovers, whom he referred to as his scarlet women. He had children with both of them. Apparently, Crowley had no intention of sheltering them from any of the daily happenings. As for what those daily happenings entailed for Cecil and Mary, here's a rundown. In the morning, Crowley's partner, Leah, would begin the day by proclaiming the law and then participating in a ceremony known as the banishing ritual of the pentagram. From there, they'd form a processional. They'd slowly walk about the grounds, performing the Adoration of the Sun ceremony, dedicated to the Egyptian god Ra. Before every meal, they would say something of a prayer, which probably involved some type of call and response in unison. It went as follows. What is thy will? It is my will to eat and drink. To what end? That my body may be fortified thereby. To what end? So that I may accomplish the great work. During the day, Cecil, Mary, and other students would participate in various invocations, banishments, and petitions. They'd study the writing of Crowley and the being known as Awas. They'd also work on certain magical disciplines. For instance, Crowley would challenge a magician's ego. He'd forbid them from using the word I. If they did, they would punish themselves by taking a razor to their forearm and making an incision. By week's end, they'd have tally marks bleeding down their arms. And this was important. All of their activities would be detailed in journal entries that could and would be read by anyone in the house. There were no secrets in Crowley's utopia. As Cecil and Mary settled in, they enjoyed life at the Abbey. Without a doubt, it was difficult, but it was also rewarding. Mary wrote in one of her journal entries that she thought Crowley was a technical expert of the highest order, but that changed quickly. One morning, Crowley asked Cecil if he wanted to go for a swim. He didn't invite Mary to go with them, but she didn't find it particularly strange. Not long into their swim, Alistair Crowley jumped on top of Cecil Maitland. He threw him into the water and held him under as long as he could. He was trying to drown him. Coming up, the Abbey of Thelema experiences its first human death. Now back to the story. In 1920, Alistair Crowley built the Abbey of Thelema in Italy. It was a commune devoted to magical studies and the law of Thelema. Do what thou wilt. In June 1921, writers Cecil Maitland and Mary Butts arrived at the Abbey. Within a few days, Crowley tried to drown Cecil. Supposedly, the attempted drowning was a test. It wasn't an act of maliciousness, but an act of love. Crowley believed that Cecil possessed all of the skills to be an incredible magician, but he lacked real will. Crowley wanted to see him fight for his life. Cecil fought and survived, but in the process, he cut himself on the jagged rocks below the water. He returned to the abbey in bad shape. Later, Cecil played an integral role in that evening's ceremony. The ritual itself involved baptizing a chicken, christening it under the name Peter Paul, and then decapitating it. Then they made cakes of light, treats that are still used in the OTO today. The Book of the Law details the recipe. 
It includes cornmeal, honey, red wine, aromatics, and olive oil. That mixture is then softened and smoothed down with rich, fresh blood. The text notes that the best blood to use is menstrual, followed by the fresh blood of a child, then an enemy's blood, a priest's, a worshiper's, and lastly, a beast's. That evening, they settled for the blood of Peter Paul the chicken. They also used goat excrement instead of cornmeal. You might be asking yourself, why would anyone willingly participate in these rituals? Can't you find your meaningful purpose without eating fecal matter? And the answer is maybe. In all honesty, we don't really know. But let's remember two things. All religions and secret societies, benevolent or otherwise, know how to tap into the power of rituals. According to science, ritual and ceremony are like fast passes to creating bonds. They offer an immediate shared experience. Especially when they are repeated over and over again, the connections formed can be quite powerful. The secret most of their leaders know but won't tell you, the more traumatic the experience is, the stronger the bond formed. And Curly wasn't just throwing people into the deep end. He let them wade into his pool beforehand. By the time they were eating feces, it was of their own volition. Their concept of normalcy had shifted. On top of that, mind-altering drugs were readily available. So the longer Mary and Cecil stayed, the more alarming their new normal became. But the alarm might not have inspired action because clarity could be interrupted any moment just by inhaling smoke. Prior to arriving at the Abbey, Mary had smoked hashish semi-frequently. She used the psychoactive resin to attempt astral projection. In addition to Crowley, she'd studied the Russian esoteric writer Pyotr Demianovich Uspensky. His research into out-of-body experiences likely involved nitrous oxide and hashish. But in addition to hashish, Crowley made a number of drugs readily available to his guests, including tobacco, alcohol, cocaine, ether, morphine, opium, and heroin. Cecil and Mary picked heroin as their drug of choice. At the time, it was still legal. Drug use was frequent and often casual, but it was given special importance during rituals, especially those of a sexual nature, and sex was just a way of life at the Abbey. Crowley referred to his bedroom as La Chambre des Cauchemars, the chamber of nightmares. Psychedelic murals covered every wall, filled with demons, snakes, and fire. The corner of the bedroom was Crowley's meditation area. There, he apparently painted a large yellow cyclops. Perhaps the most evocative painting in the room was of the Greek god Pan. A warning, it's explicit. The painting depicted the half-man, half-goat, anally penetrating a man, presumably Crowley, as Crowley's semen dripped onto the naked body of his scarlet woman below. It might be worth mentioning that Crowley's most successful poem is called A Hymn to Pan. Similarly erotic, it ends with these words. Flesh to thy bone, flower to thy rod. With hoofs of steel I race on the rocks, through solstice stubborn to equinox. And I rave and I rape and I rip and I rend, everlasting world without end. Mannequin, maiden, maenad man, in the might of Pan, yo Pan, yo Pan Pan. Pan, yo Pan. 
To be clear, Pan the god has always been associated with sex, but to the ancient Greeks, Pan was also the god of the forests, fields, glens, and theater. And yes, the abbey represented those elements too. It was a farmhouse in the middle of Sicily, surrounded by fields and forests. There was plenty of theater. After all, what is a ritual if not a performance piece? But Crowley's theatrical interpretation of Pan would make even the Greeks blush. And occasionally, the metaphor took a dark turn into a reality that was all too real. In late July, Crowley devised what he called a Seth ceremony, a sex magic ritual of the highest order. We don't know who exactly was present at the time, but lying in the center of the house's main room was Leia Hirsig. Leia was one of Crowley's scarlet women. Her magical name was Alostral, meaning the womb of God. Whether she consented to it or not, Leia was likely drugged. In the midst of their ceremony, Crowley brought in a male goat. He then tried with gusto to make the animal penetrate his wife. Allegedly, after the copulation, they were meant to drink the beast's blood. But the goat struggled. It wouldn't cooperate. So Crowley sacrificed it. He slit its throat and let its blood splatter all over Leia's back. Beast 666 then finished the goat's intended purpose himself. Apparently afterwards, an incredibly confused Leia asked Mary what she should do next. Mary's only words of guidance were that she should probably take a bath. But the ceremony was the straw that broke Mary's back. She began to plan a transition out of the Abbey of Thelema and back to the outside world. In September 1921, Mary Butts and Cecil Maitland left the farmhouse with little more than a heroin habit. Mary later used her writing talents to slander Crowley. She called him a fanatic and a sham. She was disturbed by the Abbey's activities, and not just the bestiality. She also accused Crowley of using children in his sex magic rituals. There's little evidence of child abuse beyond Mary's accusation, however. As for the attempt at bestiality, Crowley confirmed that himself. Later, in his book, Diary of a Drug Fiend, Crowley called Mary a fat, bold, red-headed slut and a white maggot. He also slandered her writing by calling it the most deplorable, dreary drivel that had ever been printed. Despite the strange whispers about the Abbey of Thelema, it continued. In November 1922, those rumors turned into an article on the Sunday Express, unveiling the depravities in the small farmhouse in Sicily. But all press was good press. The piece acted as a form of publicity as much as it did a warning. Their guest list grew to encompass celebrities like silent film actress Jane Wolfe. That fall, it included another young couple, 22-year-old Oxford student Raoul Loveday and his wife, Betty May. Loveday had met Crowley at a lecture he gave in an apartment. Crowley allegedly took an immediate liking to Loveday. He invited him to a private one-on-one -on -one magic lesson. Loveday readily accepted. Three days passed before Betty May saw her husband again. When Loveday finally knocked on his front door, he told his wife that he'd been astrally projecting with Crowley the entire time. Loveday had lost track of time, and Crowley had been pressuring him to stay. He had to escape by climbing out a window and shimmying down a drainpipe to the street. 
But Loveday wasn't scared of the experience or of Crowley. He was excited to tell his wife about his plans for their future. He was also high on ether, a chemical commonly used in anesthesia. When used recreationally, the drug could produce feelings of euphoria. Loveday had been using it to magically transport himself through space and time. Betty May herself wasn't a novice when it came to illicit drugs, illegal activities, or underground societies. At the time, the 30-year-old's drugs of choice were cocaine and alcohol. As a girl, she'd grown up in a brothel before branching off and working as a model for art students. Around the time she'd turned 20, she'd joined Les Apaches, a violent Parisian gang of muggers and criminals. Betty's job was to seduce wealthy elites out of their money. She did it well enough to earn the nickname Tiger Woman. For the most part, she left that lifestyle behind when she moved from Paris back to London and met Loveday. She took up acting and singing in venues like the Harlequin Club. Somewhere in that timeline, she was married and divorced twice. Which is all to say, when Alistair Crowley arrived at their home a few days later, dressed in a kilt, a wig, and lipstick, inviting himself in for dinner, Betty May let him inside. Her life had been full of colorful men, and none of them had gotten the best of her yet. She swallowed whatever doubts she had because her husband loved the bizarre, bald magician. Even after Crowley made a remark about how one day Betty May would routinely cook for him, she let the comment roll off her back. When her husband started spouting stories of a utopian commune called the Abbey of Thelema, she begrudgingly agreed to go with him. She knew how passionate Loveday was about the mystic arts. For him, this was his chance to work intimately with, arguably, the preeminent leader in occult thought, the leader of the Ordo Templi Orientis. So that fall, they traveled to Sicily, even after a friend begged them not to. Even though, in order to buy the train tickets, they had to pawn Betty's wedding ring. They hoped that their sacrifice would be worth it. They never expected that in a matter of months, Raoul Loveday would be dead. And Betty May would accuse Crowley of killing him. Coming up, Crowley's most controversial ritual ever. Now, back to the story. In 1920, Alistair Crowley built the Abbey of Thelema in Italy to be a school of magic, home to a utopian commune. But the renovated farmhouse was quickly plagued by rumors of drugs, animal sacrifice, and wild orgies with the devil. Then, in 1923, one of Crowley's youngest and brightest students suddenly died. The cause of Raoul Loveday's death is still debated, but the story begins with a cat a stray that, unfortunately, decided to scratch Alistair Crowley. Crowley believed that stray cats at the Abbey contained evil spirits, so it quickly became his will to sacrifice the feline that drew his blood, and it became Loveday's job to do it. In early February 1923, the cat, whom the residents had named Michetti, was drugged and placed in a sack. As part of the ritual sacrifice, Loveday reportedly recited a vulgar Latin incantation, quite possibly the holy hymn to the great gods. Loveday tried to slit Machete's throat, but as he did, the cat woke up and the execution was botched. Blood sprayed through the room as they caught the animal, drugged it again, and then finished cutting its throat. 
This time, the stray's blood was emptied into a silver goblet, which Crowley gave to Loveday. Crowley told him to drink, and Loveday did. Soon after, he became incredibly ill. Betty May blamed the abhorrent ritual, assuming he'd contracted a disease from the stray cat's blood. It was a natural reaction for her. Practically from day one, she loathed the Abbey, and it was no secret that now she hated Crowley. She refused to participate in most of his debauchery. Possibly as punishment for her behavior, Crowley relegated her to the role of housekeeper. Amongst her many duties, she was responsible for cooking meals, just as Crowley had predicted. So after her husband fell ill, Betty was quick to point fingers, but there was more to the story than she initially led on. On the morning of the cat's sacrifice, Loveday and Betty May had gone for a hike. The day's heat drove them to a mountain spring, one that they'd been warned not to drink from. But parched, Loveday drank his fill. Which meant there were two possible sources of his ailment, not one. It didn't help that Loveday's health had been declining since he'd arrived at the Abbey, likely due to his heavy drug use. He also had a possible case of hepatitis that he might have contracted from Crowley, either through shared intravenous injection or sex. So by the time he drank cat's blood and contaminated water on the same day, his immune system was already suffering. When Loveday saw a doctor, they diagnosed him with acute gastroenteritis, an inflammation of the intestinal lining brought on by a virus, parasite, or bacteria. And by February 16, 1923, Raoul Loveday had passed away. It could have been the blood, it could have been the water. But Betty May concluded, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Alistair Crowley was the true cause. Her husband would never have succumbed to either had he not been living in the drug-filled farmhouse littered with feces, fluids, and filth. And to that end, she was probably right. When Betty arrived back in London, she brought her story to a paper known for sensationalized journalism, the Sunday Express. On February 25th, the article was printed. Its title, New Sinister Revelations of Aleister Crowley, Varsity Lad's Death, Dreadful Ordeal of Young Wife. It detailed how Loveday and May had been trapped in an inferno, a maelstrom of filth and obscenity. It described the Abbey's conditions as too unutterably disgusting to be detailed in a newspaper. It, of course, mentioned the obscene sex acts. It added that children were present to witness them, which was probably truer than Mary Butt's accusations that they'd participated. Those who grew up at the Abbey of Thelema were free to roam about the estate as they pleased. Crowley wanted them unburdened by shame. Either way, it wasn't long before the Sunday Express article ended up in the hands of Italy's own Benito Mussolini. The dictator had already attempted to eradicate his country of various mafias and secret societies like the Freemasons. On April 23, 1923, Mussolini served Crowley a deportation order. His followers were allowed to stay at the Abbey. Later that year, news of Crowley's reputed activities caused the OTO to be banned in England. A little more than a decade passed before Crowley's magical secret society was outlawed in Germany, the same country where it had all begun. Eleven years after that, according to James R. Lewis, author of Satanism Today, at 69 years old, Crowley had lost his legendary libido. 
Then, three more years passed, and on December 1, 1947, Crowley died from complications related to chronic bronchitis. It's been more than seven decades since Aleister Crowley's death, and we're no closer to understanding the nature of the most influential leader in the OTO's storied history. The simple action of selecting which stories to include in this episode has undoubtedly misled you in one way or another. Your impression of the Beast 666 is based on the experience we've curated. We didn't tell you about his years-long petty feud with one of the most famous poets to have ever lived, W.B. Yeats. How Crowley believed he was a pope in a past life, Pope Alexander VI, a controversial leader whose years in the papacy were riddled with scandal. How he possibly shot and killed a man in India, but was never held responsible. Or how, during World War II, he may have lured a Nazi to England on government orders. How some speculate that he worked as a spy for Allied forces during World War I. How he once faked his death with the help of Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa. Or how, in addition to the OTO, he started another occult secret society called Astrum Argentium, or the AA. We could have discussed his many marriages and partners, the men and women he manipulated and used, the children he never cared for, how he only welcomed ideas from men, never women, or how he idly stood by as one of his alleged male partners was publicly shamed and accused of sodomy. How he grew up wealthy, but spent the entirety of his inheritance on failed projects, like the Abbey of Thelema. He ended up paranoid and poor, funded by his most devoted followers, like renowned scientist, chemist, and rocket engineer Jack Parsons. We could have told you that if you've ever picked up a deck of tarot cards, odds are high that they were designed by the magician himself. We could have attempted to explain his actions, discuss the influence of his Christian upbringing, how his emotionally abusive mother was the first to ever call him Beast. But it can't be done. There's just too much to cover and too many differing opinions on the enigmatic magician. According to their website, today the OTO still manage and govern in substantial conformance with the principles set forth in the writings of Aleister Crowley. We don't know what that means in action. Like Henry Noble Hall, we can't get past the bewildering riddle of Crowley's life, let alone his legacy. In the late 1970s, writer and musician Gary Lockman joined a chapter of the OTO in California. He said, In truth, we were little more than an Aleister Crowley fan club. We kept our magical records, a diary of magical activities that Crowley insisted upon, and got together regularly to discuss different aspects of the great work. Some of the others talked about Crowley's anal sex rituals or his ideas about magical masturbation. That adoration stems from somewhere. Over the course of his life, Crowley wrote at least six different books. Most are difficult to read. He insisted on writing in a stream of consciousness, and he never edited a single word. That said, even the Times Literary Supplement said his autobiography was filled with an amazing fertility of incidents and ideas. Because he touches upon something, something beautiful an energy that inspired David Bowie to shatter pop culture's norms, for Led Zeppelin to inscribe the words, Do What Thou Wilt, into their third album. 
Despite the stories we chose to tell, not everyone left the Abbey of Thelema traumatized. Crowley student Alan Bennett once wrote, I will spend the rest of my life in spreading his teaching, for he alone led me to the knowledge of my real subconscious self. To many people, Crowley mattered, maybe because his message hit the world at precisely the right time. Be yourself, burn the rules. There's a world far bigger than the reality you were presented with at birth. And his influence is still felt today in rock music, in Bond villains, in horror films, in religion, and in the OTO. But none of that changes the fact that Crowley was an egomaniac, a liar, and a hypocrite. He lusted for the spotlight, reveled in his own notoriety. His actions only occasionally aligned with his teachings. His evasion of consequence caused those around him to suffer as he washed his hands clean of responsibility. It's a quandary that we're often presented with these days. Louis C.K., Woody Allen, R. Kelly, Roman Polanski. Is it possible to separate the genius from the individual? Can we reconcile corrupt men, their victims, and the gifts they gave the world? We don't know. All we can say is, your power isn't given to you, it's already inside of you. If you ever encounter a man that promises you the world, ask yourself, is he telling the truth? Then trust your gut. It's magic. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the OTO, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Alistair Crowley, Magic, Rock and Roll, and the Wickedest Man in the World by Gary Lockman. Very helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hey.